We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com slash squared. Maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve, and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi Project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either-or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. Hello podcast listeners, I'm Connor and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today we're joined by Peter Gagan, author of the new book Democracy for Sale, Dark Money and Dirty Politics. And he spoke to Nick Cohen, columnist at The Observer, all about how democracy and elections really work in the digital age. From dark money and hostile foreign powers to secret influence campaigns and shell companies. It's a really fascinating look at the forces shaping our democracies and we hope you enjoy it. I'm Nick Cohen. I'm a journalist and the Observer. I write books and for lots of other papers as well. My name is Peter Gagan and I'm Investigations Editor of Open Democracy and I'm the author of Democracy for Sale, Dark Money and Dirty Politics, which is out with Head of Zeus. It's a, it's a really impressive book before I go any further and I recommend everyone, everyone get a copy. Can you perhaps just tell viewers your basic thesis, you know, your your basic concern before we start looking into details and solutions well basically my book is all about the rise of what i'm calling dark money but what, what i mean by that is kind of unaccountable money and influence and lobbying and, and even data and the internet in british politics and i'm looking at basically my argument is that british politics has fundamentally changed in recent years because we're seeing increasing flows of just basically of dark money in different ways 
Money, in terms of political donations, is becoming more of a feature of politics. Lobbying is becoming increasingly opaque and hard to uh, hard to follow. And actually, really, really fundamentally, the internet has also really changed our politics. And I'm arguing that all of our rules and our laws around how we do politics, how our democracy is protected, are all really for a digi- uh, for an analog era. They're all out of date, and we're living in a digital age. And that. Our politicians don't seem to want to grapple with the complicated, difficult reality of just how really corroded and broken our electoral system has become. I suppose someone you know, coming this afresh could say, well, hold on a second, Peter. You know, we're not remotely like America where there's no limits at all. The Supreme Court won't impose any limits on political funding. There, there are pretty strict laws. There are caps and limits and registers of interest surely this is this is quite a tight system in theory it is and it was for a very long time i i actually would i would agree for quite a long time we had you know we've always had the role of money in british politics is not new lloyd george basically sold honors you know to the highest bidder that's been a part of our system for a long time we've had cash for access cash for questions but in general actually i would agree that the, the, the rules around our politics reasonably work reasonably well when it comes to elections there's really tight spending but in some ways actually that's an indication of just how broken the system is the spending rules are so tight, it's about, on average, about twelve to £15,000 a candidate's allowed to spend in each constituency, that nobody keeps to them. Nobody believes that a candidate general election spends that little. So what we have actually is we all accept that those spending rules are going to be broken. They're broken all the time. No one, I think it's about 100 years since the last person was convicted of breaking spending rules during a general election, which is, is kind of, that is a huge part of the problem. So we've, and in a world of kind of constant campaigning, we have political rules that are all set really around elections, around electoral events. But in a world of constant campaigning, which is kind of where we're at now in Britain, it's a, you know, you just have to look at how our government acts in, in general, that we have rolling political campaigns. The role of money then becomes way, way harder to track. And the way money brings influence into politics becomes far, far harder to track. If you wanted to give someone one example to change their mind, to say something in your book, just look at this. Look at this and then think again. What would you pick? Well, I, I think I might take two examples just to be, just to be contrarian <laughs> with it. One's a really simple one. So if you get a leaflet through your front door from a politician at election time, it'll have probably their face looking, smiling, maybe holding a baby, saying something anodyne. And it'll have on the back, it'll have their details and it'll say who paid for it and who printed it and all the rest of it. That's called an imprint. All physical pieces of uh, election paraphernalia have to have an imprint. If that same politician was to send you a target ad on Facebook saying the exact same thing with the exact same picture of themselves, they don't have to say anything. They don't even have to carry an imprint on it. Like that's not, we don't have to do that. They don't have to do that. So that's a very, very kind of basic example of, and that's not hard to fix. That could be easily fixed, but the decision has always has been taken not to fix it. But if you want to talk about something which I think is more insidious and actually more concerning, I, I write quite a lot in the book about the role of, of think tanks, of what are basically kind of corporate lobbying organisations in British politics. And this is very American model of politics. What you do is, uh, instead of funding politicians, instead of giving politicians money, what corporations and, and certain individuals who are, who are interested in changing the political conversation do instead, or as well as, as giving money to parties is to fund what look like independent groups who come up with recommendations and ideas and policies that fit in with their agenda. This has long been a facet of American politics. And, and who are, I mean, this is one of my great bugbears, are not treated, are not called by their proper names by the media. So before the last election, you'd have Corbyn supporters from Navarra Media, Tories from the Institute of Economic Affairs, 
acting as outriders and or outriders. What, what, what a lovely name! Propagandists for their parties. And Andrew, Andrew Neil and no one would say, "Hold on a second, you are just repeating party lines given to you by Jeremy Corbyn or Boris Johnson." That's what you are. You're not independent. You're not a journalist. You're not a, a think tanker. You are a rank propagandist because they they, they, they they want to they, they play along with the game. And a lot of these organisations, like the Institute of Economic Affairs and many of these kind of Tufton Street groups, they're also charities. So they even it's like a double whammy. You can give money to them anonymously and get a charitable deduction on it. And I think I completely agree. What these outriders have done is see the opportunities in the media space as well. A lot of these think tanks, really what they are is very savvy media operators. They run phone lines. If you pick up the phone and call them, they will appear on your show to say pretty much whatever you want. And what it's done is, and I think what it does is it allows corporate influence to take, to like take hold in politics in ways we can't see. But it's also pulled and shifted our politics and our discourse in ways that you know, aren't representative. And I think I, I would agree if I turned when I turned on the television in the run up to the twenty nineteen general election, the discourse had gone so far, it was so polarized for that very reason. Yeah, well, I mean, they really do understand the media because if you or anyone watching this, suppose someone watching this programme publishes a piece, say on Open Democracy or in, in my newspaper, The Observer, someone and someone from the BBC politics show phones them up, here's how the conversation goes. They'll say we really like your piece, and the, and the viewer to the podcast, a viewer to this, the, to, our, our viewer would say, "Oh, thanks very much." But would you say what you said, but then go on to just push it a bit far? And the viewer might say, oh, "I don't know. I'm not sure that's true." And when you've pushed it a bit further, will you push it to an absolutely absurd extreme? Because that's what we want on television. And whether it's the IEA or Navarra Media or Claire Fox, they all will say, "Yeah, of course we will." We will go to the absolute extreme and provide you with gormless, shrieking television that will stop the viewer, you know, rather make the viewer delighted or angry and stop them switching over or going off and doing something else. They really do understand how it works. Well, there's a, there's a, I, I quote a figure in my book, and it's from the Institute of Economic Affairs' own report one year. And the IEA has a turnover most years of in around £2 million. Where the money comes from, we really have no idea beyond the odd leak. It's come from oil money in the past, tobacco money, but we don't know much about it. But it estimated it had £66 million worth of media in that one year. That's a huge return for your investment. If I was, you know, why would you pay a lobbyist who's going to have to, lob- have to register with the lobbying register, who might get you a meeting with a minister, it'll be there in the paper, you'd have to look it up. You're much better, it's a better use of your money, I would imagine, to spend a couple of grand with someone like that who will argue your point on television, probably write it in a newspaper column, write a quick, thin report that you can go around, you know, if you're in the gambling industry or wherever else. And, you know, and they will say, in their defence, they will say, look, we believe these things anyway. We're just saying what we believe. But it's always interesting that what they say they believe tallies very closely with, with the kind of corporations that would want to fund something like that. And you also give their backers plausible deni- deniability. That's what I find so fascinating about outriders. Whether on right or left, if they say something that embarrasses the party, they say, well, it's not us, it's not us, the party's saying it. It's just 
So and so from the think tank. Why why are you bothering us about it? And the same thing is happening with social media, Nick. I think too. I think that's what's happened with social media. Like I write in the book about the social media that started appearing around the twenty nineteen general election. You can push narratives much further on social media with huge plausible liability. You can just set up what are completely astroturf organisations. You know, I look at some of like hundreds of thousands of pounds are spent on Facebook ads by like uh, groups from the left and from the right that disappeared. As soon as the election ended, it's particularly on the right. I was, you know, you're thinking, right? You've, you've, you've spent. There was one thing called capitalist worker. It spent about sixty five thousand pounds on Facebook ads, right? You'd imagine at the end of that, having won the election, you'd want to celebrate. You might want to harness those people who supported you, considering that you're saying you're a campaign. But yet, no. All of these groups, every single one, disappeared the day after the general election, which suggests that they're not real. Which is proof they're front organisations. Because if you, if you were a serious right wing economic organisation, campaign group. You wouldn't stop at the election victory. You say, no, now, now uh, uh, Johnson's in power. We want to give him ideas, hold him to account, shape the debate. Of course they don't. You would see that as the opportunity to actually, you know, to really engage. You'd say, oh, my word, I've got all these supporters. Because what's interesting as well, a lot of these campaigns have rec- recorded no donations. And so the donation threshold is £7,500. So in, they're suggesting that they got some of these campaigns. If you'd spend £65,000 on ads, you got at least nine or ten people to give you almost the maximum donation, but just not enough to declare it. Which, to be honest, kind of beggars belief. If you've not got, you know, where are you get? Where is the, the idea that large numbers of people are going to give money for what are with our front organisations? It doesn't. It doesn't tally. But there's no fear about doing that kind of thing because the chances of anything ever happening to you are so slim. And if you were, if the electoral commission was to investigate you, the maximum fine in Britain for breaking electoral law is twenty thousand pounds. In America, you can go to prison for breaking electoral law. Here, it barely even qualifies as a slap on the wrist. Yeah. So we've got a sort of 19th century, early 20th century view of politics as it's just election campaigns, very tightly controlled, but the law's never enforced anyway. We've got think tanks, front organisation, outriders who can operate particularly on social media, basically beyond the rule of law because there is no law covering them. What else should we be worried about? Where else is dark money coming in? There's also just traditional ways, actually, of just, you know, there's really, like, even in just polit- traditional political donations, which do look like they're very transparent, so all political donations are registered, but there's, there's still a problem with this. So, for example, the Conservative Party, which is the party that really relies on private money, the Labour Party gets most of its money from the unions, which has its own issues. But I, I want to, in the interest of fairness, come back at you on that yeah, one. I'm very happy to, yeah, we can have a chat about that too. But in terms of the Conservative Party, it runs what, it runs what are called like kind of tiers of, le- of membership for, for supporters. And this really happened during David Cameron. They tried to diversify the amount of money they get and to build, get more money. They set up a thing called a leaders group for top Tory donors. So if you give the Conservative Party at least £50,000 a year, you get to go once a quarter to meetings with the Prime Minister and leading Cabinet Ministers and you all kind of sit around. It's all off the record. It's all private. Nothing is, uh, nothing is divulged about what happens there. That's incredible access for almost no money. Uh, David Cameron did come under pressure about this because he was holding, hosting these in Downing Street in his flat, which was a government, uh, a government residency. Belatedly, he did start publishing these. But as I noticed when I was researching my book, the Conservative Party has actually stopped publish, both stopped publishing any details of previous meetings and taken all the records of the old ones off its website. So that's a really good example, I think, of how money can influence politics in a really direct way. Um, also, what you're seeing as well is a lot of money comes... I've spent a lot of time 
looking at actual returns. A lot of money comes from companies, some of which seem to do almost no business and are very, very opaque and hard to find out how they operate. You know, I did a story recently about there's not in Finchley, there's a famous uh, building in which is about 50,000 companies registered. And a number of the companies registered there have given money to the Conservative Party. Clearly, they are not actively doing business in that address. It's very hard to see what these companies do because some of them have almost no turnover, yet they're still able to give money to political parties. But there's that. So that's another way in which it's quite easy to uh, give money to kind of funnel money almost anonymously into political campaigns. To me, the most extraordinary story and the most English story of this is Russian money, Russian influence in the Brexit referendum, which ends up, when we finally have a, a Commons report on it, with something that is so disgustingly English, I, it makes me want to abandon my nationality. The security services didn't investigate. Oh, oh no, we don't wash our dirty laundry in public. We don't want to embarrass Theresa May. We don't want to embarrass Gladys Johnson. It'll be politically difficult, so we'll pretend it didn't happen. Which is remarkable, considering MI5 and MI6 demand special powers because their officers are bravely out there risking their lives and so they can have secret court hearings or official secrets acts protecting them. You know, the normal standards of justice and accountability are thrown out the window to protect these brave boys and girls. And when a British referendum, a British ele- election, there's allegations they've been interfered with, they'll, they'll, the little cowards will close their eyes, hide their heads and say, oh, it's too politically difficult, we won't do anything at all. Well, one of the things I found most remarkable about the Russia report was there's a section in the middle where they basically, the authors of the report say, we don't, we never, when we were writing this, we found it really hard to figure out who was in charge of looking after our democracy. They described uh, democracy as a hot potato. And it was quite clear that there was a bunch of different organisations, none of whom had really taken responsibility for the kind of things you were talking about, Nick. This is a kind of constant theme I found in the work I do, where organisations or regulators will pass the book from one to the other. There's a huge sense of, like, we won't, like, you know, if if I see another email between the Electoral Commission and the Information Commissioner's Office where each of them says, look, this has nothing to do with us, really, it's the other one. But that is writ large in the Russia report. And I couldn't... At almost the exact same time that report was being published, and let's not forget, the government tried for eight months to suppress the report, and it was only, you know, they tried everything to try and suppress that report. But almost the exact same moment that 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 report was being finally published, Chloe Smith, who's the Cabinet Office Minister, so she would be in charge, her brief should include things like exactly what we're talking about. She was giving evidence at at a separate parliamentary inquiry, and she said that consolidating electoral law, reforming electoral law, isn't a priority for the government. So basically, they don't intend to do anything about any of these things. And the only measure in terms of securing our democracy and our democratic process that Boris Johnson has said he firmly wants to bring in is voter ID, which is solving a problem that really doesn't exist. I think there was about seven incidents of voter ID at at the 2017 general election. So what you've got is... You know, you've got the security services, you've got basically we haven't investigated what a huge question mark about the democratic process, which could happen again and again. And instead of that, they're til- um, we've got we had the prime minister tilting at windmills. Well, I mean, say what you like about America, but the CIA and the FBI did their duty. They investigated uh, Russian interference in 2016 election. And, you know, we know what they found. We, we are pointed to the Facebook group set up to undermine Hillary Clinton. We know that Julian Assange acted as a conduit for the Russians and Trump. 
We, we know it all because it was investigated. Um, in Britain, they ran away uh, or passed the buck, as you say, because, well, uh, Leave won the Brexit referendum. First Theresa May, then Boris Johnson support Brexit. Gosh, this is politically difficult for us. We could get into trouble. We'll just, we'll just, we'll just, we'll just back off. I mean, this is a huge dereliction of duty. Oh, it is massive, massive, completely. I think, and I think that that's writ large. And I, and I found the response was so depressing in terms of you know Boris Johnson stands up and says something about Islington Remainers. Um, despite having lived in Islington himself until quite recently, and it's all some sort of silly plot. And I think the, the that sort that aspect of of kind of de- of just really not caring about how degraded democracy is, but in some respects it is of a piece of what we saw in the last few months and in the, in the in the weeks and months leading up to the general election too. Like we did see a really dirty general election campaign. I think it's it's quite easy to forget. It was one of the things I wanted to do writing this book was to kind of try and put down in writing like just the various things that we saw, whether it was, you know, whether it was kind of um, rebranding the Conservative Party's Twitter Twitter account as a fact-checking account during a live debate or just pushing out endless outrider stuff on social media. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code SQUARED, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code SQUARED to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I wanted for balance. Do you have any worries, or do you see union funding for Labour in the same category as business funding 
for the Tories. I'll tell you why I asked the question, and it's not just as a matter of balance. Unite, the main funder of Labour, played a crucial role in getting its candidate Ed Miliband elected after the 2010 election, and a crucial role in getting Jenny Formby elect, uh, Jeremy Corbyn elected after 2015. It gets Len McCluskey gets his friends unite officials as general secretaries of the Labour Party, and I was just thinking, well, look, if Mega Greed PLC, the most evil capitalist company on earth, helped select both Theresa May and Boris Johnson, and then insists that uh, executives of Mega Greed went in and actually ran the Tory Party, there would be a bit of a fuss about it. I think I do think there's a, there's there's something interesting. Like the union funding question, I think is one that the Labour Party, because it hasn't ever diversified its funding, especially in recent years, it's become. I think it has become incredibly reliant on union funding, and you end up with a question like of the democratic relationship between what's going on, what unions union funding and the Labour Party too, because you know we've had seen ballots with very very low numbers of uh, of return of returns in Unite and things like that, and I think it's a reasonable question. I would like to see, to be honest, like I think there's a reasonable case you made to just to capping donations across the piece and saying, look, this is this is this is the the most in a donation you can get from an individual. This is the most you can get from this type of organisation. This is the most you can get from that type of organisation, and. Like it's a controversial thing to suggest, but actually getting the state to run in to kind of come in behind and and basically match fund or more so small donations. So if, if we were to move away from the reliance of the union of labour on the unions and the Tories on very, very small numbers of very rich people and actually force parties to diversify their funding, they would I, I think also be forced to diversify kind of how they how they operate and who they represent you would see i think a much broader you would you yeah. it's a chance to go back to far more broad church political parties if you cast back to the 50s and 60s when both labor and the tories had millions and millions and millions of members labor's had a had a big boot had a did have a big jump after jeremy corbyn became leader that seems to be trailing off now the tories have a very small number of members about the same number as the snp and the SNP are only in Scotland. So there's a, I think, and I think the problem is, in some respects, the union funding of, of Labour has encouraged Labour to, to, to not move at times, to not diversify, to not democratise, because there is always going to be a vested interest in unions in, in controlling, if they're controlling the purse strings, well, then, you, then you've, got a, you've got a huge amount of clout. I think your point, that you, your controversial point, that we, there's got to be more state funding, because people don't like it. No, they don't say, hey, why on earth should yeah. I pay my taxes to fund politicians? But at the same time, the same people who say that will then read your book or watch this and say, Jesus Christ, look at the corruption Peter's showing me. Well, you've got to have one or the other, really. You've got to bite the bullet and say, as most countries do, well, you know, if you, if, if you want an end to, or it will never end, but you want a limit to it, then you've got to accept that, some, that more taxpayer funding is, is in order. I think as well, we, we don't realise how exceptional we are in some of this. I think we do kind of tend to think that everywhere is the same as us. And especially with what we do, like what's it, when I started doing this sort of work, I used to think that Britain actually, it wasn't so bad in Britain because compared to America, it's far less money in Britain. Like in America, like your £50,000 will get you dinner with the Prime Minister. I don't think in, in America $50,000 will probably get you, you know, a minor senator from, you know, from a Midwestern state, never mind, you know, never mind the leader of a country. But if you think about it the other way round, 
actually it makes Britain, I think, even more susceptible to finance because partly because there's less money around, it's actually even more important to try and get it. That's why I think like we we tolerate and say the Conservatives tolerate, you know, um, the wife of a former Vladimir Putin finance minister spending oh, eighty, ninety, a hundred thousand pounds to play tennis with Boris Johnson. You know, this is which is just. I think if we saw that in other countries, we'd find absolutely jaw-dropping. And I think it's, a, it's also the kind of thing that really erodes trust in politics. There was an interesting survey out from Cambridge University earlier this year that found that disenchantment and dissatisfaction with democracy were highest in two places in the world, the United States and Great Britain. And I don't think it's a coincidence that they're the two countries in which money plays the biggest role in it. Like, we've seen even this summer a series of scandals from the cronies and oligarchs that got given peerages and knighthoods and the dissolution honours list to the Robert Jenrick's apparent bias in Richard Desmond's property case. You know, there's, there's not, you know, there's, it's, it's to the Russia report itself. There's no shortage of evidence of, like, you know, of basically of cronyism and what I think could only be called corruption. Well, it's an interesting point you make, isn't it? Uh, in Britain, your bribe goes further. You get a, you get a, you get a lot more for your money than you do in America. I also think we should just stop uh, comparing ourselves with America. You know, love it dearly, lots to admire there. It is a fantastic. Is politics are fantastically corrupt? Are openly corrupt? It's not. It's not even corrupt in the sense of it's politics takes tens, hundreds, and hundreds of millions of dollars. The Supreme Court said you can take it from any interest group they want, you want, they can run PACs. That's how America works. It's not how the overwhelming majority of Western democracies work. In most Western democracies, as you say, you cannot, if you are a, a, the wife of a leading Russian figure, give the Prime Minister's party £80,000 and have, a, have friendly tenancies matched with him. You just can't. No, it wouldn't be allowed. It would be, it would be a huge scandal. It would be a kind of thing that ended careers. And I think that's part of it too, is that I think in recent years, our tolerance, we've become quite inured to the kind of scandals that I think in the past would have cost political careers. So in my book, yeah. I decided to go back to the story of Liam Fox and Atlantic Bridge. And we won't rehearse all of it here, but the long and short was Liam Fox spent 10 years building up this Atlanticist think tank between Britain and America. He got funding from all sorts of who knows where, set up a sister organization in America to, to pull in more money. And when he became he became Secretary of State for Defense, which is a, you know, a high profile position, and he had uh, he had his aide coming, go, his best friend and head of this, the same charity, Atlantic Bridge, going around the world with him and meeting foreign kind of political leaders. And that did eventually that did cost Liam Fox's job then. But I actually think if that scandal had happened now, a I think it probably wouldn't it wouldn't have been as dam it wouldn't have been anywhere near as damaging his political career. But also. At that stage, all the newspapers really ran for that story. It wasn't just one newspaper. They all went in for it together. And I think there's been, like, as, paper, as the, almost the media has become polarised too, there's been less of a tendency. You know, the Guardian will really go for these sort of stories. People like me at Open Democracy, we go for them. But often, actually, this kind of stuff has become, it's not, it's not been focused on as much. The Rush Report, I think, was the first time in a while where you've seen things like, you know, Russian donors on the front page of the Times and things like that. I, I mean, I think you're quite right about the polarisation, particularly with Brexit, is that if you were a leaver, all that mattered about a politician was, is he or she pro-Brexit? Nothing else mattered. You know, there was a time to go from money to sex and you know, keep, keep the show bubbling along. The Conservative Party, of all parties, would never have had a lecture like Boris Johnson 
as a leader. They might have been filled with you know, quasi-Victorian sexual hypocrisy or what have you. But they just said, no, 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 you're a scoundrel, we don't want you. And you're known to be a scoundrel. And I think the same applies with money now. Uh, you know, this is what drives me mad on, on Russia in 2016, where, you know, colleagues of mine like Carol Cadwallader actually got evidence of the Russian ambassador meeting Aaron Banks, Nigel Farage, offers of gold mines in Siberia during the referendum campaign or, you know, in the run to the referendum campaign. And it's still, as far as the right-wing press are concerned, it's not a story because it's anti-Brexit. As far as the BBC, who are just as bad as MI5 and MI6, oh, it's too hot for us to touch, you know. And so a handful of journalists, you, Luke Harding, Carol Cadwallader, have been left out there, often abused, and have done the work that should have been done by a, a, a well-organised, properly run, mature democracy. And so, you know, you can't, and in the end, you can't leave it to journalists, I don't think. I, I don't want to talk, talk our trade down, because we don't have subpoena powers. You know, you can't say, you can't say, well, this, this looks all wrong. I'm going in with my team and I'm going to search his bank accounts. You, you have no power to do that. You have no right to do that. Only the state can do the job and the state does not want to do the job. Yes, no, I would agree. There's, there is a limit to the power of journalism. What journalism can do is put something out into the public domain, but it needs the state to act on it. It needs political actors to act on it. And mm -hmm. what you saw in the, in the, in the kind of, you know, the, the closest we got was, was the kind of Department of Culture, Media and Support Select Committee inquiry into fake news, which, which actually generated a lot of interesting stuff. But really, that was just a talking shop. It was not, it had no mm -hmm. official powers. Dominic Cummings, Numerous times refused to come and give evidence. It didn't matter a hoot to, to Dominic Cummings, and he was still made special advisor to Boris Johnson despite refusing to appear before Parliament a couple of months later. So it's quite clear. I think that's the thing because there's no comeback for bending the rules until they break. There's no need for them to engage unless there, unless there is something rigorous with actual proper subpoena powers, with proper powers of, to dem of democratic oversight to go and investigate these sorts of things. And they are the kind of questions, you know, it doesn't, in my mind as well, it's, you know, okay, the Russia report is written just about Russia, but this, you know, you could ask about Chinese influence. You could also ask about just the influence of individual donors who might want, you know, non well, things. There's a huge amount. And if we're not going to ask those questions, well, we're never going to find out the answers. Well, I mean, that's a point that's worth making. Everyone refers back to 2016, the Trump election, the Brexit referendum. But, you know, we're talking four or five years ago now. The world has moved on. And there are all kinds of countries now following Russian information warfare. China, you saw China start it with trying to cover up its failures on the COVID virus. Iran, Saudi Arabia, all kinds of countries are piling into this. The avenues with social media are growing for them, so it's not as if it's not as if we ought to be looking historically or refighting old battles, because we haven't, and as far as the establishment, for want of a better word, has no willingness to change the law and put proper protections in place. We're even more exposed, I think, as we go forward. Yeah, I would agree. No, I think if, if anything, we're even because and because I think of the response from Boris Johnson to the Russia report, it's actually really denigrated, I think, the opportunity to even talk about these things because he's basically said, I do not want to hear about it. So if you're a government minister, say you're a government minister who thinks this is a big deal. I actually ended up on the radio a couple of days after Russia report with Tobias Elwood, the conservative is on the defence committee. 
And you know, he was saying, this is really, this is concerning. We should, we need to find out more about this. We need to be investigating it. Well, you know, he's basically, you know, I, I can't imagine that would have gone down particularly well in Downing Street, where there are basically saying we don't want to, you know, the only, the only people who are going to say things about this are people who really are like Tobias Elwood, who voted Remain and would be seen not as part of a Johnson clan. It's like, well, my political career is not going to go anywhere for the moment anyway, so I can talk about it. But if you were in a position of authority, like a, government, like a departmental minister, well, then you're not going to engage with it because it will be, it'll be disastrous for your career. Yeah, I, I, I keep being reminded of, of a little couplet, a, a courtier to Elizabeth I wrote, um, treason never prospers, what's the reason? For if it prospers, none dare call it treason. You know, no one in power dares call out or demand the laws that we need because the people, uh, you know, Boris Johnson, the people at the top, don't want it. No, and so so exactly, and so in that in in that vacuum, you get kind of quite farcical things like what's happening at the moment, where you have the Committee on Standards and Public Life is having an investigation and a kind of an inquiry into electoral law and electoral reform, but it's not going to include money in politics or party political donations. So you will tinker around the edges and come up with small little bits and pieces, but there won't be any substantive change at all. And if anything, actually, it's quite not hard to see the system getting worse. Okay, I want to end with two questions what you think should happen and what you think will happen so if you were prime minister as you probably should be what would you do what laws would you enact i'll resist the temptation to kind of glow on the idea of the first irish prime minister of england but um <laughs> that would be that would be the full reversal but it's well there's lots of things i would do quite quickly that aren't aren't hard you know i would reform electoral law quite dramatically it's not hard to do other countries do it they do it like there's models out there it doesn't have everything doesn't have to be world beating it can be world copying you know it's not hard to lift laws and like so basically and some of us come from countries that like actually america have a a proper lobbying register that actually works or all the lobbying is there but unlike america put a a ceiling on political donations make it quite low maybe about ten thousand pounds it's seven and a half thousand euros in france so something like that um, make party membership tax deductible, which you know is quite an easy way of putting money into political parties and, and, and increasing the number of people in politics yeah. without you know without causing the the great uh, kind of uh, pearl clutching that the idea of giving actual money to political parties and politicians does. So there's a bunch of things like that. I think the internet is a huge thing, and I think it's beyond just the scope of one state. I think the power of Silicon Valley and of tech companies to dictate how our, our politics works and how democracy works is really is quite is really terrifying in many respects especially companies like Facebook who show who show you know who flirt with amorality to be to be to be polite about it and i think there's a real need for politicians um to to act to act collectively on it and to build coalitions and actually Europe has been very good on on this the European Union has been good on on Facebook and just the, the size of tech companies and the the role that they play in our democracy. And I think that's something that is a that is a nettle that really does need to be grasped. Like in the book, I talk about what happened with the railroad in the like late nineteenth century, where you had these barons and you had this kind of basically was a captive a captive capitalism. I mean, it was monopoly capitalism, and that's bad for everybody. And they were broken up and. Politics was actually really arranged around that. Like there was actual political candidates who stood on platforms like that. And I think there's a whole, that's a huge thing that I, I think I, needs to happen. There needs to be a huge kind of political will to do something on it. So that's all the nice, you know, when I'm king, when I'm kind of like look, looking around the other way, just as, 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 as the reporter and the punter, I, 
I do find it like it's hard not to, it's it's definitely hard with this government to not see at the moment in particular around reform coming through government that's quite, I find that quite difficult to see positive steps because what this government has seen is it can get away with doing things you know I've spent the last few months actually reporting a lot on government contracts and how government contracts have basically gone to mates of the Conservative Party with no tendering process you know really lucrative contracts and and they're, when you're able to do that and there's no political comeback I think why would you why would you try and set, set why would you try and fix a system that benefits you when the rig system benefits you why would you try and fix it so that's my gloomy part of that so I think what there needs to almost be is like some sort of you know way in which actual citizens and actual individuals are able whether it's engaging with tech companies and making making like you know whether it's kind of saying like pulling advertisement from things like Facebook to say look unless while you're going to still run political ads that are, fo- are t- spreading lies, well then, you know, we're not going to advertise with you. That can be part of the solution. But I also think another part of the solution is 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 taking that to a democratic level as well. It's going right for, for MPs, for individual MPs who are found guilty of doing things that it becomes something that isn't just forgotten about and isn't mo- doesn't just move on from it. Like, so you do end up continuing going, this is, you know, this is this is who this is what's happened, and making that you know making that an actual point that that's just reiterated over and over again. But it is I'm not I'm not Panglossy, and I do realise that in the current climate, as long as politicians think they can get away with it, the only way around that is making the public say something, say that this isn't you know that politicians like you know is this something we will I, not tolerate. I actually wonder, Peter, if the mood is going to change. I thought you were you were quite right in what you said earlier about, well, look, any scandal would be tolerated. It would not even be a scandal to, say, supporters of Leave if the, the politician at the centre it was a Lever, because what mattered to them was leaving the EU. Everything else was divergent and could always be dismissed, though it's just moaning Remainers trying to get at one of ours. Now, that's fading. People's incomes, people's jobs are going up in smoke because of the Covid crisis. And there is a there is a very bad smell about this government. Anything goes, a smell of entitlement. I, I, I thought the most interesting thing about, it's hardly the same as, as what your book's about, but about the Dominic Cummings breaking curfew, going to, going to Barnard Castle, was all he needed to do when the Guardian in the Mirror broke the story on the Friday was, well, he could have resigned, that would have killed the story. Johnson could have just said, you're out. Even if he had apologised, there is such an aggressive, macho, we are the masters now culture in this government. You never concede an inch, you never apologise, you never retreat, you, whatever it is, whatever it is we've done, we can always see, oh, it's just Remainers, it's just Europeans, it's just our enemies making this up. We can, in the case of Dominic Cummings, even forge his own blog post to make it look he's so essential he saw COVID-19 coming. I wonder how the optimist in me, and I'm not usually accused of being an optimist, just wonders this how long this rather luxury decadent period of English history can last before people start turning, particularly people whose incomes are cut, whose jobs are going, whose relatives might have died of COVID how long they were put up with this. It was interesting, I thought. The, I thought the Dominic Cummings thing was very interesting, especially when you saw the polling around it. You know, a lot of Conservative voters were really unhappy with it. A lot of Leave voters were really unhappy with it. And the government tried to frame it as a Leave Remain thing. You know, in the Guardian, the Mirror, these cons, you know, campaigning remaining newspapers. And I don't think that worked. 
And as in a, in a few months, I don't think it, it did. And if you look at the polls, it really didn't. And that, I think, is going to be an almost unsustainable position, say, in six months' time. You know, after January, I think it's going to be very, very hard to frame everything as a Brexiteer conspiracy, you know, as, as a Remain conspiracy. No, I do. I would agree. I think there's more reasons to be cheerful if you look at the kind of polling data than without constantly comparing America to Britain. I think it's easy to over compare the two, the two places. I think it's, it's easy to see too much of a bleed over from one to the other. Even though in my book, I talk a lot about those links and I think there's definitely in terms of money and politics a lot going on. But the two societies are fundamentally actually really different. I've lived in both of them and they really are very different. And I think we're not at that level of culture wars here where if Boris Johnson stands up and says black is white, everyone will go, yeah, of course it is. You know, at least there's a lot of people who won't and there's still, and I, I think there is actually, in that respect, I do think there's reasons to be cheerful. Right. Thank you so much. I, I'd like to end by saying that everyone watching should go out and buy a copy of this book, preferably with their own money, you know, not corrupt money, not stolen money, but I'm sure Peter will accept any sales wherever they come from. <laughs> well, thank you, and thank, and thank you very much for depressing but still invigorating conversation. Thank you very much, and thank, thanks for uh, making me imagine myself as the, as, the, as the Prime Minister one day. <laughs>